I think we probably don't see the spike in default rates come yet in 2020. I think that spike we will see more in 2021 personally. I think that's where you run the risk where, you know, the banks start to lift some of the um, sort of moratorium that they've granted. A lot of the forbearance measures get lifted. And that's where you will start to see where business models which have changed permanently from the COVID, which aren't able to really pull out of the doldrums. That's where you're going to see that pressure point and that's where the defaults will rise from. So I would probably say we see defaults tick up slightly in 2020, but really the spike doesn't come until 2021. That was Omatunde Luwal, head of Emerging Markets Corporate Debt. And this is Streaming Income, a podcast from Bearings. I'm your host, Greg Campion, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 11 of season two of Streaming Income. Throughout the season, we'll be bringing you in-depth conversations with experts on asset classes like EM debt, high yield, real estate, and more. Remember, if you'd like to receive our latest insights as soon as they become available, you can subscribe to the show by searching Streaming Income on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. So on today's show, I spoke with Omatunde Luol, head of Emerging Markets Corporate Debt here at Bearings, and Chem Karashida, head of Emerging Markets Sovereign Debt. We covered a lot of ground in this conversation. We discussed how the COVID-19 crisis is impacting the real economies of emerging markets and how that's similar and different compared with developed markets. We talked about the impact on the EM debt outlook from lower oil prices, lower rates, and the liquidity that central bankers have been pumping into the system. We also discussed the default environment and why we may not see default spike until 2021. And finally, we talked about the opportunities and risks that Jem and Tunde are seeing over the next 6 to 12 months. So with that, please enjoy this conversation with Oma Tunde Luol and Chem Karashida. Okay, Jem, Tunde, welcome to the show. So excited to have you both here. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Greg. Glad to be here. Great, great. So I think it's a great time to speak about emerging markets today. You know, we spoke with your colleague, Ricardo Adroge, about six weeks ago when we were really in the depths of the volatility of this crisis, at least uh, to date. And a lot's happened since then. So I'm hoping that the two of you can, can get us up to speed on where we are today. So we've obviously seen uh, some material weakness in oil prices since that time. We've seen you know, the market volatility calmed down to some degree. Um, and I want to talk about that. But probably the biggest thing we've seen, you know, since that time is the continuation of the spread of the virus itself. So, you know, maybe let's let's start there because obviously we're all doing this from home today as a result of this gem in Massachusetts, Tunde in, in London. But it's not obviously just a developed market problem. It's a very much an emerging market problem. So I'd like to get your sense how the crisis so far is playing out in the real economies of emerging markets and what are some of the biggest impacts you're seeing. So Jim, if you want to take a stab at that, I'd love to hear your, your perspective there. I'm sure. So no surprise, the emerging markets are just as affected. So I think there's a lot of similarity with respect to the fundamental shock. A good number of emerging markets, if not the vast majority, are in similar 
immobility stances, for lack of a better word, whether that's uh, in partial or uh, curfew form. That applies to the general population for certain hours or for a certain age group or less rigid forms of stay-at-home policies. They're also widespread. The healthcare challenge is similar. The collapse, therefore, in economic activity is very similar. So in that sense, a lot more similarity than dissimilarity. From a fundamental economic perspective, the one thing to note, though, is that unlike some of the major economies in the world, the big elephants being the U.S., Eurozone, and and Japan, um, many emerging markets are smaller and more open, relatively speaking. Again, not all. uh, We can't necessarily generalize. There are less open emerging market economies, but a good number of them are open, and a good number of them are open in specific and certain ways, such as through tourism. Uh, Many smaller uh, emerging markets rely heavily on tourism. Uh, Some of them rely heavily on remittances that come from their migrant populations that live in host countries. In terms of their ability to respond, they're less advantaged, at least if we have to generalize, and that is they don't benefit from the reserve currency. The U.S. has a reserve currency of the world, so uh, a country like the U.S., the Eurozone, can engage in QE more easily sure. than, than the weaker emerging markets. So in that sense, the, the ability to respond uh, with financial stimulus varies and, and generally is less than it would be in developed markets. Tony, how about, a, how about from a corporate perspective in terms of how it's feeding through to, to the universe that, that you look at every day? Right. Yeah. I think as Jen mentioned, I think EM countries, they're all being affected similar to DM countries where, you know, the, the population is largely on lockdown in most places and, you know, lots of people aren't working at the moment and the revenue stream for a lot of people has has dried up. And, and the impact also for the corporates in a lot of these countries, similar to developed market countries, are quite similar as well. Largely, most of the global fleet of aircraft has been grounded. And so this has been something that has affected both the DM and EM. We've had a lot of airports where revenue streams have pretty much dried out completely. And we've seen a lot of strain popping up in those kind of sectors where, you know, revenue streams have died out overnight. We've seen malls being shut down. Those sort of business models are being affected in terms of the, the real economy. That those are the kind of impacts that we're seeing. It is very similar to developed market um, economies. And as Jem mentioned, you know, the main difference here is that you don't have a central bank that's providing as much support or governments that have enough financial flexibility to provide helicopter money to the same degree as you have had for the developed market economies. And I think that's the slight difference there is without that sort of helicopter money coming in, there is more of an impetus to, for emerging markets to reopen and lift the lockdowns a lot faster to alleviate this uh, economic pressure that's building. In the absence of the helicopter money that they don't have, what we have seen is more sort of social measures around utility bills and tech, where a lot of the EM countries have announced that for certain segments of the economy, you know, living below the breadline or, you know, certain low income parts of the economy, they're providing free electricity and gas and water for the next three months while the pandemic is going on. And we've also seen the same in terms of provision of free phone and broadband, just just to sort of alleviate in the absence of actual hard cash being provided. That's interesting. So so there's other ways to do it, I guess, then if you're if you're not going to just pump money straight into the economy, there's other ways that you can help people out essentially. Correct. Um, sounds like EMs are, are are kind of being a little more creative on that side. So that's that's interesting to hear. 
you know, maybe uh, as we think about one of the factors that's really impacted emerging markets the most is the weakness that we've seen in uh, oil prices. So obviously, last month we saw a massive uh, sell-off in the in the near-term oil future contract. That was probably more of a technical move than anything else. But let's talk a little bit about oil markets. You know, we talked with Ricardo. Uh, when he was on the podcast about this, and we talked a little bit about you know how Saudi Arabia, for instance, may not be able to withstand low, very low oil prices for a very long time. But let's talk about that because surely there are impacts both at the sovereign level and at the corporate level. So, Jim, maybe let's start high level at, at the country level. W- what are you seeing from from an oil price impact at this stage? So, in general, when you think about oil and sovereigns and macroeconomies, you have the oil exporters, if you will, are more are more concentrated in oil than the oil importers are dependent on oil. So when oil prices fall, it hurts fewer but those more concentrated sovereigns than it benefits those the, the many, which is the vast majority of emerging markets that import oil. So there are winners and losers. Now you can say there are winners on the importing side, but given the nature of this shock, which is oil prices are lower for the wrong reason, which is a massive collapse in global demand. It's obviously, it's it's bad for everybody. It's just a partial offset sure. yeah. for those that are import. Now, coming to the to the exporters, I mean, there are those that are on the stronger camp. Saudi Arabia is an example where as of today, it has a strong balance sheet. It's, it has assets to deplete. And there are others that fall in that category, Kazakhstan, Azerbaijan or some of the other stronger, Qatar and Abu Dhabi. So they have very, very strong balance sheets and therefore uh, liquidity for a few years. So in the middle of that spectrum are countries like, say, Colombia, which doesn't have a strong balance sheet, but has currency flexibility and a robust policy framework to maintain access to markets and for the balance of payments to adjust. Russia also falls into that category. So Russia and Colombia would go into this strong policy framework, flexible exchange rates, where the exchange rate depreciation helps adjust the balance of payments. So the country's creditworthiness is well-maintained. On the other side of that spectrum are weak oil credits that don't have the balance sheet strength, that have high debt, and have a reliance on sort of easier access to markets. Some of them are on edge. Some of them are trading at distress levels and for the right reasons. Uh, Angola is one example of that. On the importing side, again, there are a number of beneficiaries, but again, I, w- I would look at that more as offsets to the hits that they're taking to exports of goods, exports of tourism, and so forth. I guess the last point I'll make is when we think about how to come out of this, and we t- when you talk about Saudi Arabia again and, and them having a strong incentive for oil prices to go back up and therefore to cut supply, that in and of itself will not do enough, will not be enough, if you will, to lift oil prices. In other words, the demand shock is so huge that oil prices coming back up is probably going to be a very gradual affair. So one has to sort of, when at least we're thinking about sovereigns and creditworthiness, we're kind of making the assumption that lower for longer or, or a very gradual pickup going back to 40, 50 in a hurry would be an imprudent assumption to make. Okay. So Tunde, I mean, there's obviously you know a number of oil producers from a corporate perspective in emerging markets. I mean, with that type of backdrop that Jem just described, how, how do these look from an investment perspective? Very good question on the oil. Um, a lot of people typically sort of have that misconception or conception that uh, 
EM corporate issuers are largely commodity. It's largely a commodity asset class. And no, it's not largely a commodity asset class, but there is a, a decent number of the universe that is linked to oil and commodities. It's roughly 10% of the index is oil and gas. As Jem mentioned, yes, there, there are winners and losers with the oil prices declining. There are at the sovereign level. You have the oil importers who benefit from this and then at exporters on the other side who, who are getting a little bit more impacted. A lot of the issuers that we have, corporate issuers that are oil exporters, yes, the bond prices have been affected. You know, you have the large quasi-sovereign oil companies where um, oil prices in general across the sector, bond prices have sold off. However, the nuance that we have within EM corporates on like, say, a different asset class like US high yield, where they also have the oil and gas sector, is that the EM corporate oil and gas issuers tend to be quasi-sovereign integrated oil producers, which means that while they have the exposure to the upstream side of the market, which is affected by the falling oil prices, they have the offset on the downstream where they're refiners and they're also selling at the pump prices. So they have a little bit of an offset, uh, a mitigant as you were in that business model. So their results aren't as volatile as you would have for a pure EMP play, especially the junior EMP. And the other thing that you have with EM issuers who are in the oil sector or in the commodity space uh, in general is that they tend to be some of the lowest cost producers of whatever commodity it is. And so within um, our EM universe, even though oil prices did drop, you know, Brent dropped uh, below 20 briefly uh, in the last sort of two months, we have a lot of the quasi-sovereign issuers actually, their break-even levels are much lower than the break-even levels of some of the DM um, EMP issuers. One of our um, issuers in India in our space, they break even at 20. A lot of the Russian issuers break even sub 20. So so the, these are the kind of sort of resilience that you have within EM corporates, even though, you know, at a broader level, all of the assets do sell off because when oil prices move down, people think, oh, this is oil and it does sell off. But the, there are nuances to that. I want to switch gears and talk about central banks because central banks have uh, played as big of a role as anyone in this crisis. Uh, obviously, we've seen you know some massive efforts uh, here in the U.S., probably to a lesser extent in Europe. But I want to talk about you know what the impact is of the liquidity that's that's been pumped into the system, at least from developed market central banks. But also, I'd like to hear you know what emerging market central bankers are doing and how all of this collectively is impacting the investment picture. So Jim, do you want to do you want to start with that one? Yeah, it's a, it's a very complicated question. Um so let, let's start with um the emerging market world really is for lack of a better way of putting it sort of the haves and the have-nots. Those that are by and large investment grade or close to investment grade rated uh, with credible central banks that have enjoyed inflation stability. And there's a long list of them from Colombia, Mexico, and even recently Brazil and Latin America to Thailand, Malaysia, Philippines, and Asia to Russia, uh, Poland, Hungary, Czech, uh, and Eastern Europe. And, and, and I'm in Peru, I forgot, Latin America. So there's a long list of them. They have the credibility for the central bank to provide liquidity support to banks to the market in, in, a, in a way that's not inflationary, that is not destabilizing uh, through currency depreciation, for example. And then there's a long list of weaker 
single B, low double B rated sovereigns that don't have that flexibility. Some of them are dollarized. Ecuador recently defaulted. Uh, some of them, there's no confidence in their currency. Uh, Argentina and, and, and Turkey is sort of somewhere in between where I, I would say that they don't have that much flexibility. So that they can't really print their own money, so to speak. So they need money from abroad. Now, money from abroad can come in two forms. One is from uh, us, the market, if you will, uh, indirectly, or through multilaterals. Now, to answer your question uh, on the on whether or not the core central bank liquidity will trickle down, if you will, to emerging markets, I, I think the the flows are going to be discriminating, meaning that liquidity that's generated in in, in G three central banks that might flow is is going to want to go to the higher quality, the more robust, the better managed places. So I I wouldn't be too presumptuous about all the weak links easily benefiting from that. The road ahead for the weaker links is tough, and given the wide range of uncertainty that we face um, with respect to the growth shock and how long this will last, et cetera, one has to be, I think, careful in making that assumption. The lower rates uh, are definitely a boost also for uh, EM corporates. I mean, funding costs have been the cheapest that they've been for for decades almost. I mean, we've seen in the last sort of three to four weeks, some of the A and sort of IG, AA, single A rated um, corporates coming to the markets, borrowing 10 year, 30 year at absolute levels that are much cheaper than where they borrowed previously in the last several years. So definitely lower funding costs. is a benefit for corporates because overall funding costs are much lower. But more than anything, I think one thing that we are noticing, whilst everyone expects a default rates will spike um, because of the, you know, the recession that we're heading into, uh, and we're coming off of a relatively strong base for corporates where corporate balance sheets have been at their strongest that they've been for years with all the deleveraging that's happened and um, refinancing that's happened with cheap money over the last few years. Um, default rates last year were at one and a half percent. No doubt default rates are going to spike a little bit higher. But what we are seeing is that with the amount of forbearance that is being announced by governments all around the world in terms of money being pumped from the central bank into the banking system and then being pushed further from the banks out into the real economy. There's a lot of forbearance being announced and moratorium uh, for a lot of SMEs, a lot of corporates in a lot of different countries where, you know, countries like India, for example, there's been a moratorium for three months where you don't have to make principal payments or interest payments. These sort of measures we find is providing a lifeline and the credit availability and credit being rolled or being provided provided to corporates is providing a lifeline for all the corporates that ordinarily might struggle and and perhaps get into distress a lot sooner. We find that the cash being pumped into the system and the liquidity is actually staving that off. Now, how long this is in place for and whether or not we get a V-shaped recovery or a U-shaped recovery is going to determine where that sort of um, interception point is uh, with the defaults versus who can actually pull out of that. But in, in our view, what we see is that for as long as these forbearance measures are in place for three months, six months, this gets us almost to the end of 2020. I think we probably don't see the spike in default rates come yet in 2020. I think that spike we will see more in 2021 personally. I think that's where you run the risk, where 
you know, the banks start to lift some of the um, sort of moratorium that they've granted, a lot of the forbearance measures get lifted. And that's where you will start to see where business models, which have changed permanently from the COVID, which aren't able to really pull out of the doldrums, that's where you're going to see that pressure point And that's where the defaults will rise from. So I would probably say we see defaults tick up slightly in 2020, but really the spike doesn't come until 2021. And then in in terms of um, sort of weak points where we think the defaults start to manifest sooner rather than later, I think it's two or three key places that stand out in our mind where Argentina is one where there's a lot of expectation that there are a few of those RG corporates that might get into trouble. Now, Argentina ordinarily does have some very good corporate issuers from there. So I wouldn't broad brush every issue in Argentina with the same brush. But there are some really small companies that came through in the last few years because of that push in the energy sector in Argentina, where the business models just aren't sustainable given the dollarized um, debt burden that a lot of these issuers have. And then Turkey is another one where there is some vulnerability within the Turkish economy where the pressures from the macro side and the potential that a lot of these corporate issuers might be shot out of the capital markets when they need to access. And then and really, away from that, I know Jem mentioned earlier, there are some weak economies uh, where you know they're assessing the credit stability, some of the more oil-linked economies. We don't have a huge amount of corporates that come from a lot of these weaker economies like uh, Lebanon or Ecuador or Zambia. But, but by and large, um, the amount of liquidity that's coming to the market and the forbearance should stave off uh, the huge, uh, a huge amount of stress for 2020. Yeah, that, that's interesting that some of the forbearance measures will almost result in a kind of delayed uh, impact in terms of the default rate. So, Jim, what's your kind of just thinking on the sovereign default picture as you look forward? As, as Tunde was talking, I, it, it brought out implicitly, which I want to make explicit, a difference, if you will, in our sovereign universe versus the corporate universe when Tunde was emphasizing the central bank and regulatory forbearance going on in various countries, which he's really referring to, and again, Tunde, correct me if I'm wrong, is the, is the larger, more diversified emerging markets, whether they be a, a, a Russia or Mexico or uh, you name it, or Indonesia, etc., and that's relevant because these are all investment-grade countries with credible policy frameworks, and that's where most of the corporates in the emerging market corporate universe come from. So you don't, yeah, you don't have too many in Dominican Republic or El Salvador or Rico Coast, uh, and in some of these cases you have one or none, um, or one or two or none. So, so that's why the picture that she's painting is important because it's more within the IG sovereign space. There's a a multiplicity of corporates, some of them IG. Some of them not IG, but close enough. And so therefore, the in some ways, the domestic QEs uh, that are helping the governments are also helping the corporates in those countries. So that's important. Now, coming to the sovereign, there it's more complicated. So I, didn't, I don't have a default rate in my mind, but I, I sure know it's higher than 1.5% for last year. For sovereigns, uh, only because we already know that Argentina, Lebanon, and Ecuador are in default. Well, Ecuador, strictly speaking, not, but effectively is. So there are more high-yield sort of sovereigns on the brink, if you will. And because there are roughly 95 countries that we cover, around 80 in the index, a good number of them, not in weight terms, but just in terms of number, uh, are single B, uh, the headlines tend to be dominated by them. 
so there's that skew to that space. So when we focus on the weaker links um, that the G20 is making noise about, uh, for example, the, the multiple issuers that we have in sub-Saharan Africa, from Zambia to Ethiopia to Ghana to Nigeria to Tunisia to Egypt, there's a long list of you know single B names, um, and that list is times four or five or six. Uh, th- th- there's many of them. All small weights, but there, some of them are on the edge. Some of them are being encouraged by multilateral agencies to at least the, a, a lot of noises being made about the private sector also participating in some type of debt relief. Long story short on that is the headlines are, I think, exaggerate the extent to which there will be default. So I don't think we're talking about tens and tens of these single B issuers defaulting. At the same time, there are some that are genuinely weak. Uh, for example, Angola, an oil-based economy, or Sri Lanka that was very weak going into this, that is, has a strong case for debt restructuring. But So I, I would say there's a few percentage points of the index that is more is still at risk. So I, I do think the default rate in sovereigns is going to go up by about one to three percentage points in the next uh, 12 months, call it. But I don't think it's going to be you know, five to 10 percentage points. Um, and, and, and a lot of the emerging market sovereigns themselves, I'll give you an example, Honduras, for example, was, it's actually eligible, if you will, to, to suspend its uh, payments to bi- bilateral, multilateral financial institutions. They themselves choose not to. They themselves want to preserve their credit worthiness and, and they want to look beyond the next few quarters and preserve market access. So I do think there's more resilience than meets the eye. Uh, at the same time, there are some, some, some weak spots. So it's really, really, really about country selection and, and doing your homework and trying to, trying to figure out which you should own and which you shouldn't. And that's what we're spending a lot of time doing. I, I think in the past sort of four to six weeks, we've spoken to, no exaggeration, 20 mission chiefs, IMF mission chiefs for mostly single B countries. Well, speaking of, of the way that you are analyzing this opportunity, that, that's one thing I'm really curious about because the world has changed. The, the risk factors that you all have to consider now are arguably greater um, in terms of everything we just talked about, whether it's you know looking at the impact of monetary policy around the world, it's looking at oil prices, it's looking at the def- default picture and trying to make some sense of that. Tunde, how are, how are you all changing your the way you're managing money. So I'm curious specifically about how you're how you're thinking about managing risk, stress testing, that sort of thing. What's changed? And also, it kind of has occurred to me as well that your team is one that is always on the road visiting countries, right? So whenever I'm uh, trying to get in touch with you uh, for one thing or another, you're you're in, in some some remote part of the world. Um, so so tell me how that's impacting the way you're analyzing things as well. As Jem said, you know, there's 90 plus countries and we probably have corporate issuers out of maybe 60 or 70 of those. So there are a lot of places to go kick tires um, pre-COVID. What we found actually very interesting is that since this pandemic has started, issuers have been a lot more responsive and a lot more reactive to receiving calls and questions from us. And so this whole move to virtual meetings has really been successful in us reaching out to issuers. I mean, we are 
in the month of March, we literally underwrote most of the issuers that we have in our portfolios. And when I say we underwrote, we made contact with management. We had discussions around their liquidity, around what impact they're seeing on COVID, on the businesses, where possible they could give us a, a sense of an outlook of where they think the permanent changes will be to their business models. And so, you know, from that perspective, our process hasn't changed in that we are continuing to do the fundamental analysis and kicking the tires and making sure that the business model is making money where there's threat to the ability to generate revenue. We are speaking to management about alternative sources. We're checking the liquidity specifically, making sure that the issuers have sufficient liquidity to cover the next 12 months if the capital markets remain shut. And where possible, you know, if, if they don't have enough cash on hand, do they have committed bank lines? Do they they have banking relationships, they have alternative sources, be it uh, sponsors who can put in equity or government support, you know, anything of that nature. And those are the things that we've been doing and we were doing before. So our investment process hasn't changed. And being in the pandemic period has just meant that, you know, there's more frequent um, contact with the issuers. Uh, we have webinars arranged constantly by the rating agencies, by the sell side, by the issuers themselves, just making sure that they're reaching out to a huge population of investors because the more information that analysts have, the better they can analyze the uh, corporate issuers. And this helps the corporate issuers themselves, both in terms of helping to bring their yields down as best as they can, and also generating that goodwill so that when the capital markets do open again and they wish to come back to the market, they do know that they did provide enough information for analysts to make correct decisions and to properly reanalyze the companies. So, uh, you know, the investment process itself hasn't changed. I think that the virtual nature of it is just maybe enhanced the the level of interaction we've had with the issuers. So it's not just podcast hosts who are asking you to jump on Zoom calls. It's also corporate issuers. Absolutely. And it's a lot cheaper as well. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. And and uh, a lot lower carbon footprint, right? Absolutely. Uh, and a lot less uh, jet lag, <laughs> <laughs> which is not a small detail if you travel a lot. Um, look, I would, I would uh, also... And for first of all, it's been a very difficult time in the sense that, uh, yes, the investment process didn't change for us as well. Of course not. But uh, we had to kind of reanalyze everything. And that has been tough. In the meantime, parts are moving. And, and so that has created a very intense period of re, re-underwriting, for lack of a better word. And within that analysis of Sarvin's is focused, of course, on our assessment of you know, the resilience of the policy framework, the flexibility of the exchange rate to help adjust the balance of payments, and access to either markets or multilateral for financing, some of the, some of the things that I hit earlier. Now, from a sort of risk management perspective or sort of from a day-to-day investment perspective, the the mode of thinking is you know if, if you think normally about uh, a probability distribution that's normally distributed and you sort of you have that nice bell curve in the middle sort of and then you have these thin tails well now clearly the tails are much thicker or even to go more extreme the the probably distribution curve is not a curve anymore it's sort of a straight straight line and anything and everything can happen with equal probability now it's not what we think but 
clearly the margin of error in anything and everything has gone up and that's not meant to be a facetious statement that's that's just the truth so uh so when we're doing the analysis we're 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 more in robustness test mode we're more in stress test scenario analysis mode with an emphasis on the downside not because we're sure oil prices are going to stay low or not because we think remittances are going to or we're sure remittances are going to fall by 50% or tourism by 80% this year and not come back next year but because that is a material possibility which needs to be on the table and the issuers that we keep exposure to or choose to buy need to be resilient against that robustness test so that's kind of the mode we have been in trying to be more selective trying to be in more quote unquote risk management mode when i say risk management it's really credit risk management really trying to avoid the cases of those potential defaults on which we we don't have the perfect crystal ball so jim tunde as as we kind of bring this discussion to a conclusion here. I want to ask you both uh, the same question. Tanya, I'll start with you. I want to ask you, as you look forward to the next six to 12 months, what jumps out at you both as your biggest worry or concern and what jumps out at you as the biggest opportunity? So in terms of opportunities, I think, you know, I probably touched on it earlier that the sell-off that we had in March, it was sharp, furious sell-off. And, you know, in, in that midst of that sell-off, there was a gravitation, a natural gravitation towards higher quality, which meant that the high yield segment of our market sold off more, the, the sell-off was more exaggerated. And so we saw that sort of widening of the basis between the high yield segment of our market against the IG segment. Um, typically, they trade around 350 to 390 bips apart, and that widened to 700 bips in March. So for me, the natural place to search for opportunities where I see opportunities currently is in the high yield segment of my market. Specifically within that, again, the focus is really more on the short end of the spectrum where a lot of these bonds, a lot of these issuers, we know that you know liquidity for the next 12 months is sufficient. And we know that if the capital markets reopen again for certain uh, better quality issuers, they will be able to access the market and they should be able to refinance debt coming due. And so you have a chance for a, a faster pullback to par for the short dated end of the high yield spectrum. And this for me is really where I find the most compelling opportunities right now, because you had the indiscriminate sell-off in our space where, for example, certain 2021 maturity bonds sold down into the 40 cents, 50 cents, where you know that there's more than enough liquidity and access to banking relationships to meet the refinancing of these bonds. There is no reason, there's no fundamental reason why the bonds should be trading in the 40s. These are just jewels, diamonds to be picked up. I think I think actually that was the the title of your recent paper on this subject, Diamonds in the Rough, wasn't it? Absolutely. Our, our listeners can find that one on uh, on bearings dot com. How about worries, Sunday? What what jumps out as your your biggest worry for the next six to twelve months? I think for me the the biggest concern really is going to be around the increasing nationalistic rhetoric that seems to be springing with the pandemic. You know, having lived through this phase of globalization that we've had for the last sort of many years, you know, it, it is quite concerning to see the increasingly sort of nationalistic retorts, especially coming from the U.S. or or the reemergence of the tensions between the U.S. and China. I think for me, that's the biggest worry right now. We, We are monitoring that very closely just to see just how 
much of this is campaign strategy from the U.S. at the moment with Trump or how much of it is truly embedded in the U.S. psyche at the moment with regards to antagonism towards China and, and what China will do in retaliation as well. I think for me that that is my biggest worry at the moment. Yeah, that is a concern. Jim, how about you? Biggest opportunity, biggest biggest worry? I think I'm more worried than feeling like there's a lot of uh, diamonds to be picked up. Um, that partly, I think, is a function of the less issuers we have in our universe and the fact that we don't have that 2020 bond at 40. That's part of the... Uh, but, but more fundamentally, I worry about our margin of error, what I referred to earlier. The basic things, that is no more than what we all know from headline news, but uh, the, uh, the risk of second waves from COVID, how long will we shut down if we prematurely open or when we open, what consequences may or may not ensue. Um, and regardless of that, there's going to be some permanent sort of effects or the, the, the recovery, I think, is going to be potentially very gradual and long lasting. So maybe, whereas before we might have thought, you know, at the very beginning, we thought this was just a 2020 affair. Well, now in our stress testing, we're thinking 2020 and 2021, of course, different magnitudes of shocks or, or, or assumptions, but that's just to give you a taste. Not to mention, of course, there's the political ramifications, some of which Sunday uh, mentioned, and that could be some of the ones that we're already seeing, some of the domestic political ramifications that we're not seeing, but tomorrow you could be, uh, you can have some social and political instability in some place that you didn't anticipate, but because of unintended consequences and effects of what's happening, whether it's the health crisis directly or whether it's the indirect economic effects. So I more gravitate towards quality. And if I'm going to look for that high yield issue, we're, um, I, I, we're going to subject it to more uh, stress testing and sort of a higher threshold. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with Jim. I think there's a lot to worry about out there for us. You know, the, the second wave, you know, the social unrest, the economic uh, fallout, so, so much to worry about. Well, listen, you two are, are credit investors, debt investors, not equity investors. So you get paid to, to worry, right? This is, this is a big part of your job. Really good point, by the way. Your upside is limited. It's basically the coupons and the par, but your downside is, is, is quite a bit because you bought it at 100. It could be 50 or 30 or 20 by the time you're done with it if you're on the wrong side. So that's, a, that's an important point, especially in these times. Yeah. And that's why that's why you know the 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 analysis and the active management, of course, is uh, is is so critical. So, well, we've covered a lot from monetary policy to the spread of the virus to oil prices to defaults. Uh, it's been a wide ranging discussion. Um, I really appreciate the insights that you all have shared. Uh, I feel like we've you've you've helped our listeners really get up to speed with what's going on today in emerging markets. The outlook kind of going forward as well. And, uh, and I'd love to have you back uh, to catch up on this subject in the near future. So, Tunde, Jem, th- thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Episode 11 of Season 2 of Streaming Income. Remember to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so that you're the first to hear about our new episodes as soon as they are available. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.